We were in the um, tail end of a series on the power of gentle persuasion. We'll be in this for the next three weeks. We'll talk about persuading unbelievers today and then persuading believers um, next week. And then the week after that, we'll talk about the voice of God. Then after that, we're going to go into a series that uh, that is it's one of those critical series, it seems. We're going to start the 25th of September and talk about the war within. And we're going to take Paul from Romans 7 into the beginning of Romans 8. We're going to take our time. We're going to kind of go through it, understand what Paul is saying. Um, as far as the Bible is concerned, this is kind of rel- relative to practically identifying what the struggle that we face as Christians. Um, I think this is the pinnacle. What Paul sees here is um, really practical, very worthwhile. So we'll do that for 10 weeks, beginning September 25th. It's going to be a really good series, I think. Um, we're talking about the power of gentle persuasion. And um, interesting, intriguing verse. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. It's surprising the power of gentleness, the power of gentle persuasion relative to the ability to influence somebody spiritually. From a spiritual perspective, gentleness has a very deep impact. When it talks about breaking a bone, it's talking about surprising influence. Um, And we're talking about the power of gentle persuasion, and that's important when we talk about spiritual influence, because relative to when God is assessing the level of maturity. It doesn't matter just what we think with our mind. It matters what we believe with our heart. So you can bully somebody into changing their opinion, and that's possible. You can bully and push. You can't bully somebody into changing their heart. You can't do that. And inevitably, God's judgment is going to be heart-based, not mind-based. And that's why gentle instruction with respect to spiritual influence, non-negotiable. Gentle persuasion is a way to change the heart. We've been looking at a verse Paul describes. He says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. And what he's describing, relative to desiring to have spiritual influence on someone, if you want to represent God, again, quarreling is just going to happen. We're going to argue about this and argue about that. With respect to spiritual influence, though, if you want to change the way somebody not only thinks with their mind, but believes with their heart, if you want to do that, quarreling is out. You cannot quarrel somebody into changing their heart. Not doable. Not doable. You can wing an argument, but the argument won't go down into changing deep beliefs. And that's what Paul indicates. So you don't quarrel. What's the plus side? Talks about must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. If you're going to have spiritual influence, if you're going to be spiritually influential, there's going to come times you're going to try to persuade someone of something, and it's not going to go like you want. It's not going to feel good. Jesus dealt with this all the time. So you're not going to hit a lot of, you're not going to have a lot of successes. There will be points where you'll be trying to influence somebody to do something, and it won't go well, and you'll have to kind of swallow and and just kind of, be patient that way. That's what the word means. Um, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them 
repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Changing somebody's heart, two levels of responsibility. There's a divine responsibility, and there's a human responsibility. And these go, it's not just God's responsibility. He does something. And it's not just our responsibility. We have something to do. So let's try to figure those out. We looked at this. This is by way of review. Um, God's responsibility is to grant repentance. God grants repentance. And repentance is one of those things that's really important to understand. When we think of repent, we think of stop doing bad things. That's not what repentance means biblically. Repentance is a change in beliefs leading to a change in behavior. That's what God has to do. He brings about repentance, a change of belief leading to a change in behavior. Okay, if that's what God does, what's our part? I mean, what role could we have if he's going to do that? And God does huge things, human responsibility. Don't quarrel. Lord's servant, God reveals himself through men and women, through representatives who don't quarrel, um, who are not resentful. So there's two don'ts. Don't quarrel. Don't be resentful. Do be kind. And do be able to teach. When God's representatives don't quarrel, are not resentful, are kind, are able to teach, when they do their part, God does his part, which to grant repentance. So the point then is deep change is, is brought via those who instruct gently. When God's representatives gently instruct, God grants repentance and change belief leads to change behavior. Communicating the good news of the Bible harshly is like putting new wine in old skins. It just doesn't work. It ends up wrecking both of them. We're going to look and listen to Paul over the next couple of weeks as he has discussions with people. And what we're going to notice is how he used gentle instruction to persuade unbelievers and per to persuade believers. Look, when Paul was waiting for his associates to arrive in Athens, Greece, he had some time on his hands. So he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul was greatly distressed. And what that means, his spirit was provoked. He was walking around Athens, looking at all the idols, the images, and and it just provoked him. Because idols, the word, the biblical word for idol is a nothing. An idol is a nothing. It's, it's a nothing that somebody believes in. What Paul believed is idols don't have any power. They can't do anything. And so what Paul sees, he sees these people approaching these images that can't do anything. And he knew he represented a God who could do something. 
And so what he ends up, he feels his spirit was provoked and stirred up. He saw the city full of idols. And here's what Paul had learned over time. I don't think he learned this right away. I think Paul was a bull in a china shop in the beginning of his ministry. Uh, When John Mark bailed out on the first missionary journey, he benched him. He said, no, that's right. I'm not going to take him along. And Barnabas was John Mark. And John Mark ended up writing the Gospel of Mark. So he started slow. But then he ended up picking up speed as he went along. But if it was up to Paul, John Mark would never have become the Mark who wrote the gospel. It was Uncle Barnabas who said, hey, Paul, lighten up. You know, he's just little. He's just young. And Paul said, frism, frism, frism. And so he, he benched him. And so Barnabas took John Mark and went one direction with John Mark. And Paul took Timothy and one another. You know what the thing about God is? He can even take arguments and cause them to work out together for good. Well, that's really what Romans 8.28 means, doesn't it? Uh, To those who love God and are called to go into his purpose, God causes all things to work together for good, even an argument between Paul and Barnabas, because John Mark ended up being very useful, and and Timothy ended up being very useful as well. he was greatly distressed. And what Paul did, he had, two, he had two things that he did when he went into a place and wanted to exert spiritual influence. He would go first to the synagogues where those people who would think like him, if you were in the synagogue, you would be aware of the Hebrew scriptures. And that's what Paul's Bible was. They didn't have the New Testament of the Bible at that time. They only had the Old Testament, 39 books. And so Paul then went and reasoned with those who would understand his points because they were familiar with the Bible. And there were Jews and God-fearing Greeks. If you and I were Greeks in the Roman Empire, we could kind of become involved in the synagogue by becoming proselytes, converts. And that's where Paul went first. And when Paul went into a place, what he understood is he's going to come in, and as we see, he's going to talk about God in a way no one had ever talked about God. And what Paul knows, he has to influence people to understand the way he sees things, because he's going to come and he's going to talk to people, do a bunch of miracles, and then he's going to go. And if there's no one there to remember and reflect Paul's views, then these people are not going to last. They'll be like sheep without shepherds, and they're going to get eaten alive. So Paul went and he reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue and with those in the marketplace. Those in the synagogue are going to be the religious. Those in the marketplace are going to be the pagans, the irreligious. And Paul talks to both of them. He reasoned with them in the synagogue. That word reasoned I'm going to tell you the Greek word, and I bet you when I tell you the Greek word, you're going to understand the English word that comes, dialegami, Paul dialegamide. That's the word from which we get the word dialogue. It comes from two Greek words. Dia means through, something that penetrates. That's dia. Lego comes from the word logos, which is word. You know what dialogue is then? Dialogue is communication that penetrates 
barriers that penetrates walls. There's a wall between you and I. I don't understand you. You don't understand me. If we can practice dialogue, I can say words that move through that barrier, You and we can find a connection. That's what Paul did when he talked to people. He dialogued with them. Um, through words, words that build bridges and words that take down walls, this four Ds, and we're going to talk about these over the next three weeks. I'll just remind you, we've talked about them before. There's four Ds of communication. Uh, there's discussion, debate, decision-making, and dialogue. Each of these have different purposes. They're all relevant. The uh, discussion is an exchange of ideas. We understand what that is. Debate is when the exchange of ideas becomes heated. That happens to us, doesn't it? When we think, I think this is the way it should be. No, that's not the way it should be. It's what over social media, there's a lot of debate over social media, isn't there? People trying to win the debate, win the argument, and that's relevant. That's a kind of communication. Uh, Decision-making is when you are trying to understand all the data in order to make an appropriate decision. And then there's dialogue. Dialogue is about promoting understanding. Building bridges that tear down walls. These kind of discussions, these kind of communications are necessary. Dialogue is unique. You can discuss and decide and debate but to do dialogue, you have to play by three rules. Not just one party, both parties. You cannot dialogue alone. You cannot dialogue alone. And the, the three E's of dialogue, equality, empathy, exploration. You have to sit as equals. You know, you might have had been in a... In a and a job where the boss asks you to come in. And let's just really be honest, I'm the boss, and I ask you to come in, and you're my employees, and, and I'm up top, and you're not quite. And I said, no, I really want us to be honest here. And so it's hard to dialogue when you're not there as equals, is it? Because you know you're going to say something, you're probably going to get whacked for it. Uh, but it, for it to be dialogue, both parties have to be sitting not just literally sitting, but you have to be at the same level. The big thing with dialogue is num this second one, empathy. The goal of dialogue is understanding. The opposite of understanding is judging. If the purpose of the communication is to determine who's right and who's wrong, you can't dialogue. Because we don't see things the same way. I'm going to say that's wrong, and that, that's when dialogue stops. It can't be about judgment. It's got to be about understanding. Now, I might not agree with you, but I want to understand. Tell me why you feel that way. And then button your lip. Tell me, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that? Why do you believe that way? Why do you believe this thing started that way? And why do you believe that's a good thing and not this? That's what dialogue is about. It's about an exchange. And so you tell me, I said, so does that mean, you know, I might not agree with you, but if I, it was just like that. And yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. And well, let me tell you the way I see it. Okay, now you tell me the way you, now, if you say, no, I just wanted to tell you what I thought, then dialogue's over. It's done. 
You know, if you're not going to listen too, but if you're going to listen and I can listen, we can do dialogue. And you know what? There's a book, The Magic of Dialogue. And what it says, we're losing this art. Would you agree with me? I'm not Paul. Bill Paul, I did it. We had the first service. Can you dialogue through a text? What do you think? Hard, isn't it? If you've got a relationship, maybe you can dialogue through a text. But if you don't know one another, hard to dialogue through. Hard to dialogue through a text if you're talking about stuff that's tricky, isn't it? You know why? Because communication is 70% nonverbal. Communication is about, I'm looking at your face, I'm looking at your body posture, I'm listening to the way, not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it. And um, so there's equality, empathy, and exploration. Exploration is when we understand one another and then we start to, oh, so you see it that way and I see it this way. Dialogue is powerful. It's not something that we are very good at. We're good at absolute statements, we're good at, I'm gonna say my thing, and but having the patience on both parts. What we're going to see is that Paul practiced this, and we're going to see it this week in a conversation from the book of Acts. Next week, there's a, there's a book in the Bible. <laughs> I, I, I wonder how many of us are even familiar with it. It only has one chapter, Philemon. We're going to look at the book of Philemon. Boy, that'll be impressive, won't you? What did you study this morning? Well, I'll tell you the truth. We did a study on the book of Philemon. Book of, book of what? Yeah, anyway, so we'll do that. We'll look at it. It's just Paul persuading a believer to treat his slave in an equitable manner. We'll look at that next week. But today, let's look at what Paul does with um, the meeting of the Areopagus. Uh, Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus were these people. All they did all day was sit around and talked about things. They didn't make any decisions. They were the Areopagus eggheads. So what they would do, somebody would come, have you ever thought about this? And they said, no, I haven't ever thought about this. And so we would have a meeting of the Areopagus eggheads, and, and we'd talk about that, and I'd say this about that, and then you'd say that about that, and, and we'd talk about that all day, and that's what we did day after day after day after day. So anyway, Paul then stands up at a meeting of the Areopagus and listen to how he handles this. Listen to how he handles this. This is great. Uh, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. Look at this. This is brilliant. Would you agree with me that this is beginning gently? You know what they say? The way a discussion ends is the way it begins. If you want a discussion with somebody, you have to start with a soft startup. Something that invites, if you start, you don't know anything. You're going to end up on that same note at the end of the discussion. If you really do want dialogue, there's got to be an entree into it that is softer. Not just, not, not the fact is, Rome, they were 
debased. It was very sexualized. And Paul sees all these idols, but he doesn't go and he said, um, you know what? I've seen you guys, you know, I've seen all your idols. You know what? I guess what we have. Well, this is what he did, didn't he? He found something in common. Would you agree? Paul was religious. He said, you're very religious as well. Now, what you believe, Paul would, Paul, he didn't agree with what they believed, but he could find common ground. You and I, are, we're, we're religious. Um, I see in every way that you are religious. It's naturally, it's natural to avoid or attack when somebody thinks or does something different than you. And that's going to happen if you're going to have the impact spiritually that God would want you to have. Avoiding and attacking is not going to work. Approach it. And that's what Paul does. Gentle instruction does not lead with judgment. And that's the that's just the thing. Judgment has its place. But if you're going to want to understand somebody, you have to withdraw it. Judgment will not create understanding. It will get in the way of it. It won't take down walls. It will build them. It won't build bridges. It will destroy them. Um, we have to take the time to understand somebody's point of view. It means we do our best to find common ground. Having found common ground, look at the way Paul introduces and look at what, and think about where he might have gone. So he's talking to these heathens. They believe in all these idols. And he says, well, you're very religious. And now he's going to tell them about what he wants them to know. Where would you start this conversation? I Think about it. You're with people that look at the where Paul lands here. And where, well, not where he lands. Look at where he starts. Now, we had a, it went dark, John. Okay, it's in your it's in your worship folder. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. Um, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples made by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Um, He himself gives life on, he doesn't focus on their behavior, does he? Look at this again. I'm going to read this one more time. The God who made the world and everything in it is, a, now you imagine hearing this, and maybe this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Do you know where Paul starts? It's where he finishes. He talks about God. He doesn't talk about behavior. He doesn't talk about morality or immorality. He doesn't talk about being Democrats or Republicans, conservatives or liberals. He talks about who God is. And what he says about God is that God doesn't need your service. He doesn't live in your buildings. How often when we hear about God are we kind of guilted 
into giving something or doing something because God can't get along without it. You ever heard that? God will do something, but if you don't give, and what Paul says, God doesn't need your service. He doesn't need your temples. But that really, it makes sense though, doesn't it? If God can't be eternal and all-powerful, if he can't get, now he, he will use what we do, but he doesn't use it because he needs it. And that's one way to know. If you're leaving a place and you have been told about the right God or a misrepresentation of God, here's the way to know. If you sit through some teaching and you end up being more burdened when you left, you probably haven't heard about God spoken accurately. Because the true thing, God has the big shoulders, not us. God has the big heart. He doesn't need our shoulders. He doesn't need our heart. God's shoulders are plenty big to do whatever he wants us to do, whatever he wants to do. And that's what Paul focuses on. Uh, it says, on the seventh day, God rested from his work when God created. You know what that suggests? When God looks around, he is not agitated. He's not panicked. He's not at a loss. He's not sad. He's not anxious. He's in control. If we were to see him, we would see somebody who isn't panicked. And that's what Paul is displaying to them. God doesn't panic. That's a hard thing to learn, isn't it? Have we been taught that God panics? Have you? We've heard messages like that, haven't we? You know what Paul would say? That's wrong. God doesn't panic. He gives us life and breath and everything else. No question. Thinking about the fact that God is all-powerful, what does that do to you? Is that motivating, demotivating? Would you agree at some level to see God as he really is brings something healthy inside? God can get along fine without us, but he chooses to use us. And he wants us to serve him knowing that he has everything under control. And he's going to win in the end. God is not panicked. Um, <laughs> where he goes, from one man he made every nation of men. This is in Acts 17, 26 through 28. That they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Listen to what about God. Here's what, here's what Paul says about God. I'll put these together. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not dwell in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men and determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. This God who creates everything, this God who is at rest, the reason he does all these things, he puts Americans in America and everywhere, the reason he does this is so that we might seek him and perhaps reach out for him. You know what God wants from you? He wants for you to find him. And he wants for you to discover what he's like and to see his confidence and his compassion. And you could find your place in that. You'd reach out, but you don't have to reach far out to him because God is closer to you than your next breath. And he's nearer to you than, his, than your next thought. He is here. And he doesn't manifest himself all the time. But what he says, the reason he's here is he wants us to seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. I've done a prayer, and I write this when I journal or when I'm talking to my prayer, and I think it's a great prayer. It's this. Reveal yourself to me. God, reveal yourself to me. All of us need that. We all hear things, and I think that's a prayer that you would pray, and, and it won't be dramatic. That's a prayer God will answer, yes, every time you ask it, God, because it's what he wants. What would that look like for you? I think all of us, we, we, we're fuzzy about God. We like him and we don't. You know what our problem is? Our thoughts aren't right. And find a gentle place, and when you do that, make room for the thoughts and do this. God Reveal yourself to me. I can't know you until you let me know what you're like. And that's what Paul is trying to encourage them. Um, God initiates and man responds. We, we tend to hear the other thing. If you will pray enough, God will respond. If you will give enough, God will respond. If you will serve enough, God will respond. Can I tell you something wrong with that? It's upside down. It's upside down. We don't initiate to get God to respond. God initiates and we respond. How does God initiate? He tells us what he's like. And if we take that inside, then we start to stop hyperventilating spiritually. Our spiritual pulse becomes slower. We end up having a relationship with him. And you know what ends up happening to us? And it does. We end up treating ourselves more gently and treating other people more gently. Would you agree it's easier to be gentle when you know somebody's there who is in control? Imagine there's a crisis. There's a crisis, and nobody knows what to do. And then that person walks in. Maybe it's a nurse or a doctor. And they say, back up. I, and then everybody starts to go, because there's somebody here who knows what they're doing. That's what God is like. And... Ask him, God, reveal yourself to me. The more we get to know God, the more we see in his face, not worry lines, confidence. And seeing that, you know what the deal is? Things are going to work out okay. Because he is really smart and really in control and really good. Um, what, is gentleness, what does gentleness look like? What does gentleness look like? Would you agree with me? Mark talked about this last week, too. You can't drive somebody and be gentle. You have to draw them. 
You can't push them or goad them. You have to walk ahead and say, and not everybody will follow. In fact, what ends up happening here um, in Acts 17, and we'll close, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. That's kind of interesting. I'd like to hear it again. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You know what the rest of the story is? I looked at this, and it says that there were there was a couple who ended up rising up um, into the church in Greece and ended up becoming the principal people in there, and their name was Dionysius and Damaris. They ended up marrying these two that ended up listening to what Paul said. They listened to the gentle instruction. And it didn't just get into their head, it got into their heart. And they ended up following Christ their life. They married and they ended up leading other people in the same path that Paul led them on. That's the way spiritual influence is supposed to work. God grants repentance. We're not to quarrel. We're to be resentful. We're to be kind and able to teach, gently instruct. Focusing on God and what he does, not bullying people, not goading people, but telling them about what God is actually like. Not everybody will respond, but those who will, they will be changed in the heart. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, thank you for how you represent yourself, reveal yourself through others. We we would have no ability to know what you think or feel if not for dispatching individuals like Paul, Jesus coming to earth and in flesh and blood showing us what you're like. And so now we have this image, but we hear all kinds of things. At any rate, thanks for Paul's focus, his gentleness. I pray that we would understand what he says and internalize a sense of you as being in control and sovereign, not freaked out, so that we could react gently to ourselves and others. In Jesus' name, amen.